0: Hey, it's Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon and Utah Poison Center is listening in on the August uh, 14th Journal Club. Uh, we've been away for a hiatus for a variety of reasons, but we're back talking about an update on toxic alcohols. So I'm going to start out. With just some basic stuff for uh, basically anyone in emergency medicine, this stuff gets asked all the time. There's an article called Diagnostic Use of Anion and Osmol Gaps in the Pediatric Emergency Medicine, but really it's not particularly different for children versus adults here. Um, They start off with two cases to kind of illustrate the point about the use of these anion gaps. The first, very briefly, is a 14-month-old girl who has a fever, And she comes in, and she's, uh, temperature's 39, her heart rate's 168, her respiratory rate's 60. And they get some labs on her, and shows her bicarb is 8, which is low, of course, sodium 134, chloride 103, potassium 4.0, and her serum osmolality is 286. So we'll talk about how to do the calculations with that and what the possibilities are. Second case, they sort of present as sort of a teaser opener is a three-year-old who comes to the plaint of not being able to be awoken since the previous evening when the babysitter was taken care of him. His temperature is also a little elevated at 38. His respiratory rate is elevated at 30. Uh, he smells a little bit of ketones on his breath. And his bicarb is 15, low but not as low as the first girl's. Sodium is elevated at 151. Chloride is 91, potassium 4.4. pH is 733. And his osmolality is 347. clearly fairly <coughs> elevated. So just a brief summary of how we use anion osmolar gaps. Basically, the gap is, is is what is you can't add up between the sum of the negative and positive charges because normally they should balance each other 100%. And so what we're not counting are all those things like sulfates, phosphates, and hydrogenated albumin, things like that. And the typical formula we use is... Uh, Sodium and potassium minus chloride and bicarb, the normal is usually about 16, although all sorts of ranges have been given by all sorts of authors. Um, And basically, if it's elevated, then you're not measuring some anions that are there. And organic acids are usually the anions that are most common to contribute to the gap. Um, So metabolic acidosis in the gap is usually one or two things. Either you have a a net loss of bicarb or a gain in hydrogen ion, Um, and then you can lose bicarb through GI fluid or renal fluid, so if you have a renal excretory problem where you're excreting a lot of bicarb or some sort of GI diarrheal illness like a fistula where you're losing bicarb, you might have an anion gap that way. Um, And diarrhea, you can lose significant bicarb losses and still have um, essentially a negative a low negative gap that can occur from renal bicarb losses rather than a positive gap so the main things we worry about are lactic acidosis from hyperperfusion um, or um, ketoacidosis which can occur from alcohol um, or from endogenous alcohols like isopropanol uh, there's two ketones there's acetoacetate and hydroxy butyric acid, and those are the only ones we measure. So if you actually drink acetone, that doesn't have an associated hydrogen ion with it. It's a neutral ketone, and therefore you don't get an anion gap when you have just pure acetonemia, but other ketones will give you an anion gap. Uremia is another thing because of retention of the unmeasured sulfate and phosphate that goes along with uremia, not because the UN has a hydrogen ion associated with it, but it's a retained uh, Non-excreutory, uh, negatively charged, uh, positively charged anions. It was just kind of interesting. Just the I didn't never knew it
1: actually was a, just an effect on the glomerular filtration that actually the BUN. So that that's actually the direct effect is actually an effect on the kidney. Oh, that was kind of interesting. Never heard that. Maybe I'm an idiot, but that I'd never really heard that explained like that before. <laughs> no, you're not idiot. It's just,
0: I, it's just <laughs> one of the quirks. You stuff.
2: That was nice of you, Zane. I was fighting my tongue. <laughs>
0: Just kidding. So lactic acidosis, uh, we had a bit of rigorous discussion about this this morning. But this review, type A is the most common. It has a high mortality, and it comes from either hypoxemia or hypoperfusion. Type B is either B1 from a systemic illness such as diabetes or liver disease. Type B2 is associated with drugs and toxins. That's what we care about. And type 3 is associated with pediatric inborn errors of metabolism, something sometimes we get asked on these neonates who have uh, acidemia, and we're trying to sort out as well. So, some of the common toxins are things like salicylate, which uncouples oxidative phosphorylation. Um, there's the a- alcohols, methanol, ethylene glycol. Um, Paraldehyde, technically, is an alcohol like substance that can used, but no one uses it anymore. We used to use it for sed- sedating children a long time ago for CT scans and whatnot, uh, but it lasted too long and had all sorts of bad side effects. Drugs like iron, INH, strychnine, cyanide, carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide, all produce lactic acidosis. And toluene abuse may, through inhalation, produce an anion gap metabolic acidosis or a normal anion gap acidosis. So take your pick, it could be either one of those. So um, if you do the calculation for case one, uh, sodium was 134. I'm going to go out of the potassium for right now. So chloride was 103 and bicarb was 8. So 103 and 8 is 111. 134 minus 111 gives you an anion gap of 22, clearly abnormal. Um, one for case two. His sodium was 151 and his uh, chloride was 91 and bicarb was 15. He had 91 and 15 together. He gets 106. And so even though his bicarb was higher than case one, if you take 106 from 151, his anion gap is 45. He's got something better. So that's why the absolute bicarb is not the only number that you need to look at, but you actually need to look at the gap. So we have this mnemonic that we rely on sometimes. Mud piles, which stands for methanol, uremia, DKA, although also remember AKA, peraldehyde, and venformin, um, neither of which are really used anymore or even available anymore. I could stand for a lot of things, inborn errors of metabolism, inhalants such as cyanide and sulfide and carbon monoxide, iron overdose, INH. H. L is this giant category of lactic acidosis, and we talked about types A, B, and C. Uh, we talked about a metformin case this morning, which certainly produced significant lactic acidosis. E is for really ethylene glycol, although ethanol is sometimes thrown in there. Ethanol by itself rarely produces a significant anion-gaping acidosis. And S is for salicylates, although things like starvation is another thing you could throw in there for alcohol ketoacidosis, which I just remember with my other ketosis. So how do we calculate the osmolar gap, which is the difference between the measured and the um, calculated osmolality, which is the amount of solutes in solution. We take, by convenience, twice the sodium, although what we're measuring is both sodium and chloride, uh, plus the glucose divided by 18 and the BUN divided by 2.8 and that is our calculated osmolality, which doesn't account for everything that's in your serum. So the difference between that and the measured osmolality is your gap. And normally, this gap should be less than 10, is a generally accepted normal range. And if it's higher, then something else is in there causing osmolality. So small osmotically existing agents like amino acids and proteins and lactate, magnesium, phosphate, sulfate, all can produce some Degree of osmolality, um, but the, really what we're really hunting for are the unusual alcohols in this picture. So um, alcohol, if you don't account for it, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, methylene, uh, ethylene glycol and methanol are the two big ones that we look for, and so there's yet another mnemonic for increased osmol gap called MAD gas, where the M is methanol, the A is alcohols, which included ethanol and ethylene glycol and isopropanol and methanol. D is diatriazoate, which is a dye that no one uses. G is glycerol. A is acetone. And S is sorbitol. So that's, if you want to remember, magas or magas, if you don't remember the D that makes no sense at all. (laughs) Um, So magas works for me. D is for don't make sense. Don't make sense. So just to sum up what happened in case one and case two. So case one ended up with a fever and an anion gap acidosis and ended up having an elevated salicylate level of 42 milligrams per deciliter and got true with bicarb and got a workup for the fever with a lumbar puncture and did fine. Case 2 was the one that had a not so low bicarb but did have an o- both an osmolar gap and a significant anion gap. So they went looking for unusual alcohols like ethylenol, methanol and ethyl glycol. Turns out the acetone odor on his breath was from the perfume he drank from the babysitter overnight, which has a high concentration of either alcohol, isopropyl alcohol. And that's what gave him his anion gap. So, talks about this nice little, like, branch point decision-making on the last page, which is helpful. Is metabolic acidosis present? Um, no. Is there a decreased anion gap? And then you look for... Um, Things that produce a decreased anion gap, which is on table one. And most of those are things like hypoalbuminemia and dilution and electrolyte disturbances of the other electrolytes that we're not measuring, like calcium, magnesium, lithium, and the rare cases of bromism. If there is a metabolic acidosis present but there is an increased anion gap, that's where we look at a mud pile or mud piles. Um, and then again, if there's a normal anion gap with metabolic acidosis, we try to distinguish between GI loss and renal bicarb loss. So we can actually do a, u- a urinary anion gap, which is something we don't go to very often. But if there's an acidosis and an increased anion gap, we, uh, we, then we go to the osmolar gap and look for the presence of methanol and methyl glycol mostly. So the question is, after talking about all of this, is this formula accurate? if alcohol is on board. And so to discuss an article that discusses that is uh, Patrick, our visiting resident.
3: So I reviewed the uh, article entitled Validation of a Pre-Existing Formula to Calculate the Contribution of Ethanol to the uh Os-Mohler Gap. It was uh, published in Clinical Toxicology. Actually, it's going to be in the August 2012 edition. And it's written by Alexander Gerard um, and colleagues uh, from the uh, University of Florida. So in the introduction, they uh, talk about the time-sensitive dilemma that a lot of ED physicians have, which is uh, whether or not to initiate uh, anecdotal treatments for a possible toxic alcohol ingestion. They talk about how... um, A lot of uh, ED physicians make this decision based on an indirect measure of the presence of toxic alcohols, and that's the osmolar gap. Um, As specific toxic alcohol levels are are not really available in a timely fashion, Um, although I think the next article will talk about uh, a fast assay uh, assay to get to ethylene glycol levels. Um, Because uh, the antidote for methazole is quite expensive, as well as uh, hemodialysis, which is another treatment for uh, toxic alcohols, uh, improving the accuracy of um, an osmolar gap calculation is, is quite important. Uh, ethanol is a, a obviously a common ingestion of a lot of our ED patients, and um, as proven in prior studies, has a significant uh, contribution to an osmolar gap. Um, traditionally, ethanol has been incorporated in the calculated osmo- osmolality uh, by dividing the ethanol level uh, measured in milligrams per deciliter. By 4.6, uh, this conversion factor comes from the ethanol uh, ethanol's molecular weight uh, 46. Uh, this study uh, by Gerard um, and colleagues uh, aims to validate a formula that was uh, derived by uh, Dr. Roy Purcell, uh, Morris Prudek, Jeff Br- Brubaker, and Riyad Abu Labin from uh, Vancouver General Hospital and the uh, BC Poison Control Center. Uh, they published their findings in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in the uh, December 2011 edition. Uh, The Purcell formula uh, calculates that uh, the calculated osmolarity is 2 times the sodium plus urea divided by 0.8, no, 2.8, sorry, uh, plus glucose divided by 18, plus ethanol divided by their coefficient, which is 3.7. An important thing about osmolar uh, gap calculations is that. they can't definitively rule in or rule out the presence of toxic alcohols. Therefore, a uh, an osmolar gap less than 10 can't completely rule out, 100% rule out that there is no toxic alcohols present, and an osmolar gap um, that is greater than 10 can't rule in toxic alcohols. Uh, reviewing the uh, materials and methods section of this study, um, this group did uh, an in vivo and in vitro um, uh, parts uh, in their study, which is similar to the original Purcell study. In part one, they took a, they did a retrospective review of lab results from 603 uh, ED patients who had um, ethanol levels, basic metabolic panels, and a serum osmolality uh, measured uh, from 2006 to 2000, 2007. The uh, basic metabolic panel was analyzed using a Roche modulator chemistry uh, analyzer, The ethanol uh, analyzer was a modular system by enzymatic uh, method by Roche. And the uh, serum osmolality uh, was measured using a freezing point uh, depression um, method. Uh, And it was uh, a uh, machine created by advanced instruments. So they took all these measurements from their uh, 603 patients and calculated uh, the osmolarity using standard formula without the ethanol uh, included, Uh, so they calculated the osmolarity as 2 times sodium plus urea uh, divided by 2.8 plus glucose divided by 18, and then they calculated the osmolar gap as the measured uh, osmolarity minus the calculated osmolarity. They applied a linear regression analysis to determine uh, a relationship between the osmolar gap and the ethanol level. And so, um, and in, in doing that, they, they uh, set to find a relationship between the two variables, and hopefully a better um, ethanol uh, coefficient. Uh, before I get to the results, I just to review, part two of their uh, uh, study it was an in vitro experiment where they took expired plasma from the blood bank. They made 32 equal 2 uh, cc uh, aliquots, samples, and they fortified each... Um, sample with 0, 5, 15, and 25 uh, microliters of 99% pure ethanol. They basically completed the same measurements they did in part one, calculated a osmolar gap, and then completed the uh, same linear regression. Uh, again, these are uh, similar parts to the Purcell uh, study. Uh, in, under the uh, statistic uh, analysis section, Um, they also calculated a Pearson coefficient, a correlation coefficient, which is the r squared and that's just to identify the presence and magnitude of the correlation Um, a value between uh, you get a value of positive 1 and negative 1 1, an r squared of of equaling 1 implies a perfect linear relationship Um, minus 1 is a perfect inverse linear relationship and 0 implies that there are no uh, there's not a linear relationship um, between the two variables. They also included a um, LTS estimation, or a least trimmed squares estimation, and that was, um, they call it a robust robust uh, regression uh, a tool to uh, control for the uh, influence of outliers, and they did have outliers in their uh, results. Uh, reviewing the results from part one, Just basically, the median ethanol level uh, in these patients in the 603 patients, 166 milligrams per deciliter. Mean serum osmolality was 338 milliosmoles per kilogram, and they had a mean osmolar gap of 47. The uh, osmolar gap in ethanol, uh, there was a high linear correlation with an R value equal 0.943. They found the slope of the line was. 0.2498, and then R squared value was really was quite high at 0.9882. Based on their findings, they said that the a more appropriate formula would be uh, for calculated osmolarity would be two times sodium plus uh, the BUN divided by 2.8 plus glucose divided by 18 plus ethanol divided by 4. So that's their coefficient. Uh, The coefficient is 4 instead of. Um, again, using the uh, least trim squared method, there were 13 data points, or 2.5% of the data set, that were deemed to be outliers, and so they were nominated. Uh They also did a post-hoc analysis, which uh, basically where they grouped the patients according to ethanol concentrations, and they had ethanol co- uh, coefficients that varied uh, very similar to three uh, in the range of 3.8 to 4.15, all kind of in the same ballpark around four. Part two of the analysis again uh, came up with an osmolar gap that was equal to ethanol divided by 4.09, so very close to four. Uh, in the discussion section, they talk about Raoult's law that in an ideal solution, solutes contribute to the osmolarity in a direct proportion to their molar concentration. Um, they talk about Hoffman and his colleagues finding that, the, again, the osmolar gap can actually range from minus 14 to 10, So, uh, and that when an osmore gap is greater than 10, one should suspect that other solutes are present, whether it be alcohol, whether it be mannitol, whether it be sulbitol. Um Ethanol, with its molecular weight of 46, um, and its frequency in our ED patients should always be suspected. Um, and it should suspect that should be suspected to contribute to an osmolar gap, um, and based on kind of the formula, based on the molecular weight, we suspect that the ethanol coefficient would be four point six. This is obviously not the case, as found by Purcell, and as found in this study. Uh, the reason for this isn't entirely known. They bring up the theory of ethanol partitioning uh, between an aqueous and non-aqueous phase in plasma. I don't know if anyone has a comment on that. Um, the osmolar gap, again, I think has to be reiterated that it can be unreliable. It is influenced by uh, sepsis, severe lactic acidosis. Again, toxic alcohol is important to toxicology and emergency medicine. Acetone and manotone. Um The osmolar gap can be considered a false negative. If an osmolar gap of 10 can be actually a false negative if a patient's baseline osmolar gap is negative 10. I don't know anyone
0: seen patients where their baseline on death is negative 10? Uh, but we'd have to explain that, that usually a, there's some major electrolyte disorder in those folks mm-hmm. so you always have to look at what are their electrolytes normal or are they some they're hyponatremic and they're an alcoholic because they're have dilutional hyponatremia from their you know ascites or something else that's odd about those persons but yes in theory that's correct in that um, if your baseline is negative 10 develop an osmol gap of 10, you'll have an osmolar calculated difference of 0, which doesn't help you and should scare you to the point that you probably still need to get a level if you're highly suspicious that ethylene glycol, especially, which has a narrower range of toxicity as far as generating osmol osmotically active substances occurs. Methanol is a little more obvious, because you usually generate a pretty substantial osmol gap with some reasonably, reasonably toxic levels of methane. But, uh, yeah, that's a very good uh, thing, uh, uh, review of that. I think the take-home message is, if you just wanna use whole numbers, you can divide your alcohol level in milligrams per deciliter by four and calculate it into your osmolar gap. They develop a very elegant study in vitro and in real patients showing that. Now, if someone could just do the same thing with the UN, and I can just divide by three, I'd be <laughs> deliriously happy and make my world at, at three in the morning very much easier.
1: So I, I I want to break in and just go back to the prior article. I thought this was kind of this is a fact I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. So for we're out there, so trichloroethane is a it's the stuff that's in uh, white out. It's the solvent that is in there. And also trichloroethylene. It said that it increased the osmolar gap, and I had never heard that before, and was not sure why it did that. So actually, if you look up the meta- I looked up the metabolism of trichloroethane, and it's actually metabolized by the SIP system to trichloroethanol. So it thus becomes an alcohol and will actually be an osmotically active agent at
0: so that point. So, just just like so we should substitute that for peraldehyde in the uh, mud, yeah. piles. We just, mud tiles. Mud tiles? Mud tiles. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I've got muddy tiles. Everyone in Oregon has muddy yeah. tiles in the winter. Um, so moving along, so the next question is. We can't rely on the Osmolric gap. Maybe what we really just, and we can't get the levels because we've kind of been around and around and trying to convince hospitals to try to get it the glycol levels. What if there was like a quick and easy test that existed out there? And I was actually uh, enlightened to this while touring Arup over in Utah where some of the uh, people in this article work and developed or worked on developing this test. So tell us about that is our New Talks fellow, Annette.
4: All right, so I will be talking about rapid and specific quantification of ethylene glycol levels, basically the adaptation of a commercial enzymatic assay to automated chemistry analyzers. so we all know, ethylene glycol, colorless, odorless, sweet-tasting, found in antifreeze and brake fluid, folks times ingested either accidentally or intentionally, and it leads to toxicity through conversion by metabolism into both glycolic acid as well as oxalic acid, both of which end up either being directly cytotoxic or actually causing collation of calcium which leads to renal failure. So we treated by actually inhibiting alcohol dehydrogenase either through alcohol, with ethanol or fromepazole. And if it's severe enough with levels greater than 50, we actually use hemodialysis. Recently there have been adding bittering agents so as to prevent consumption, although we don't know how successful that's been. And unfortunately, there's been some question as to how can we distinguish it from propylene glycol, which has also been substituted in attempts at preventing people from being harmed. Currently, the most common way of getting a level is to actually using gas chromatography with flame ionization, which is basically considered the gold standard for this particular test. In this particular article, they decided to establish the validity of catechum, which is currently used in veterinary practices, in order to determine a quick enzymatic method to actually get a level. In the past, it had been studied. However, they ended up with false positives from uh, propylene glycol, 1,3-butendiol, 2,3-butendiol, 1-octanol, as well as 1,3-propendiol. And what they actually did was they modified the kinetic time intervals to actually change the way the data is obtained and measure out. Ethan glycol level. In the materials and methods, they basically went and explained how they got their catechum as well as all of the reagents needed to measure out and test the actual test. And they got them all from Sigma Aldrich. And the way that catechum actually works, it's a bacterial enzyme. Uh, they use glycerol dehydrogenase and they cause an oxida- oxidation of glycol in the presence of NED, And then they check a the change of absorbance at 340 nanometers. What they ran into the past was that they actually only used two points, and from those two points, they actually determined the concentration. However, if there was contaminants or there were other ingredients present, such as propylene glycol and the ones I've mentioned earlier, the change. The concentration wouldn't be what actually was present. So they decided to change the kinetics by actually measuring multiple points along the spectrum and then determining an actual line. And from that line they would go on and determine what the actual concentration was. And they found out that if there was contaminants or ingredients that you weren't interested in, it actually changed the shape of the line. The line was no longer linear therefore it could actually generate a flagged message. There was an error therefore you should think that there's Something else present; and it's not just ethylene glycol. And they went about testing this by comparing it against what they are considering the gold standard, which is gas gas chromatography with flame. In the form of results, um, they were able to distinguish between propylene glycol and ethylene glycol, and they had multiple ways of sort of arriving at this. First, they looked through accuracy. They took multiple dilutions along the way and confirmed that yes, they were measuring the dilutions accordingly. They also looked at precision, um, just how many concentrations of known concentrations matched to their same results. They compared both the catechin acid as well as the gas chromatography assay, and It turns out that both of them were within what we would expect normal range in regards to specificity, they were actually looking in particularly what are, what's going on with all these known interference that we've had in the past. The big ones that they were looking at was propylene glycol, 2,3-butanediol, and ethanol. Um, in the past, when they had tried to run this test previously, um, whenever these results actually came up, they would show up as positive, positive ethylene glycol. And they were not actually getting correlating um, concentrations. This time around when they changed the kinetics of the study, they were able to actually get rid of the false positives, but not by flagging an error message rather than reading out a concentration. So you were one, able to say that the concentration was not legit and two, say that there's something else and letting clinicians or whoever is running the test be aware of the fact that there's potentially a contaminant in the salt source. And they were actually able to run it with uh, 67 samples that they actually known that contained uh, contaminants or combinations of all these compounds, and they were able to to basically 58% of them false positives using the original study, and they did not false, uh, false positives with this particular assay, and they were all flagged as errors. In regards to the patient sample correlation, um, they actually ran 73 clinical samples. They're, in those samples, they actually had samples that didn't have ethylene glycol and they actually tested negative, so they didn't generate um, error messages. They just came out as negative. They also had um, 33 samples that were confirmed as ethylene glycol, and what was actually critical in this particular enzyme assay was that those sam- there was a total of eight samples that never required dilution from the modified can assay. Actually, only eight samples required dilution, whereas if you'd actually use a gas chromatography, more samples required dilution, therefore, increase the time that you actually required to result out the results. Therefore, in their discussion, they come out to, this is a life-threatening emergency. Enzymatic assays have in the past been plagued by lots of analytic problems. However, this new method, Allows automation to come into play. It actually gives, inter- it lets you know when the interferences that are known to be present are there. Therefore, can much earlier let you know that you're not necessarily dealing with ethylene glycol, potentially saving somebody from going down the flamefazole ethanol route if they don't need to. And it actually allows a lot of more hospitals to actually have on-site testing rather than sending them out to a separate facility. It may take a long time for those results to come back. All
0: right. Yeah. So this is uh, really, if it gets ad- adopted, would be a great step forward. This would be able, most hospitals would be able to modify their existing automated chemistry machine that spits out, you know, a Chem 20 or whatnot to also include ethylene glycol levels, which has been sort of the bane of all our existence, trying to get these levels and not just the middle of the night, but anywhere. Um, in, in a lot of the states we all work at and get calls from, there's maybe one hospital or one lab that can do these samples, and it's always a challenge to get the blood or the patient to that location in order to get it done. It's also a great time saver in that it goes, they said their turnaround times would drop Um, substantially, literally to a 30-minute turnaround time from when the sample was put in the machine to when they had a result. So the real issue is if you can do it right on site, you get it at the lab, you know, a little processing time, 30 minutes to an hour later, you have an answer. Is it or is it not ethylene glycol toxicity in a specific level? It's linearly correlated really well up to levels of 300 without having to dilute it, so you're not having to wait. Well, it's positive, but we're diluting it one more time we're another extra number of hours of time before we actually get you an answer. How positive it's going to be? So I'm not sure where this stands in relationship to its being available and its use, but it certainly is better and better than sort of the what we suggested a few years ago when we reviewed the subject, just using the veterinary tests that they use for dogs. You know, which no one wanted to do and no one wanted to touch, and obviously there was interfering, interfering agents that went along with it. So, I just want to talk briefly about how we treat and why we treat and how, where it all came from. Um, there's two studies that came out. I'll call them Meta1 and Meta2 because they stood for the Methylpyrazone for Toxic Alcohol Study Group. They were both published know, about a year or so apart in the New England Journal. The first one was Fumepazole for the Treatment of Ethylene Glycol Poisoning. All of 15 patients were described. And the second one, even more amazingly, to the New England Journal was metazole treatment of methanol poisoning, or META-2. And in this case, they had all of eight patients described from this multi-poison center-based study. And what they found is what we currently know works with metazole. Um, the studies were done between, uh, between 95 and 97. They looked at 23 consecutive patients, and they had to eliminate a few of them for the ethylene glycol group. They had a standard treatment protocol, which is the well-known treatment protocol we use now. Methazol was an orphan drug, uh, provided orphan medical at the time. Is an IV loading dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram, and then 12 hours later, 10 milligrams per kilogram for the next 48 hours. And then if they needed to be treated after that because methazol does induce its own metabolism. It went back up to 15 milligrams per kilogram, q12 hours based on their status, and. Uh, think if they got dialyzed, they also increased the rate of administration in there as well. And their entry criteria was that um, you could be entered if you had arterial pH below 1 or a decrease of 0.05 in the arterial pH despite giving IV bicarb, or an arterial pH below 7.3 despite IV administration, sodium bicarb. So those are the criteria for dialyzing these patients. There's a couple of other ones, of course. But basically all these patients were still being dialyzed based on the old notion, which we'll dispute here shortly, that all these patients, if they were have high levels or acidotic, needed to be treated. So the first study, there was 23 patients enrolled. Four of them uh, were found to have ethylene glycol in their serum, so they got tossed out. Um, and they ended up, I think, with 19 altogether. Uh, the mean age of the 23 patients was 42 and 19 patients have concluded in the analysis. Their age was 41. Those are the ones that counted. Um, the In 12 patients, plasma ethanol was undetectable in four of them. It was greater than 100, or they were already starting to treat themselves. And 12 patients actually had oxalate crystals in the urine, which is helpful when you find it because it's highly suggest um, amongst the other causes of oxalate urea that ethylene glycol was ingested and is already starting to cause renal injury. 17 of these patients underwent hemodialysis, so a lot of them were dialyzed in this early phase, and they measured plasma glycolate concentrations, and it decreased, which is the toxic, actually, uh, agent generated by glycol metabolism. It decreased progressively in all patients. And arterial ph and serum bicarb increased progressively, and those two numbers correlated very well. So either through dialysis or seizing production of the toxic metabolite, pH and bicarb got better. So this is where the anion gap comes into play. And they also measured plasma from concentrations during therapy, something we really can't do now, but during the experimental study they were able to do, and they found these levels. Um, they ranged from 15 to 30 micrograms per mil, and the mean half-time of elimination during the treatment uh, with ethylene glycol was 19.7 hours. Um, Outcome all these patients in the ethylene glycol, except for one, survived. The one who died had a pH of 7.05, and then after he was enrolled in the study, he had an MI and died from cardiogenic shock 22 hours later. So he had other things going on as well. Um, Nine patients had high serum creatinines at the beginning of the study, and they all presented later, had more severe acidosis, and the creatinine, became normal in six of the nine of those patients. And all those in who renal injury developed also had elevated plasma glycolite levels, so a correlated as well, of at least 98 milligrams per deciliter. So they're suggesting with these small numbers that if you get a plasma glycolate level in the 98 to 100 range, you're at risk for renal injury unless you're being treated. And no signs of renal injury developed in any patient whose plasma glycolyte concentration was below essentially 77 milligrams per deciliter. So those seem to be the thresholds for toxicity and renal uh, failure. Um, And the patients tolerated things pretty well. One patient had a little transient bradycardia. Um, Another one had a little bit of bradycardia as well, but he also had a generalized seizure and developed his MI right at that same time, so that may have been what was going on. And so based on this, it seemed that fromepazole was a rational and effective theory, treatment for ethylene glycol poisoning. And it was initially uh, approved for that use. And it really took them, they kept trying to get enough methanol cases. And we know there's probably about three times as many ethylene glycol cases as there are methanol cases. And finally, they just said, let's just publish what we have. Um, and it was about a year or so later. In and the two- yes. <laughs> and said, "Sure, we'll take, sure, we'll take this eight-patient case report and publishing it uh, just for you guys." Uh, and pretty much, this what well, they
2: well, you got a, you got a catchy name of your study, <laughs> okay?
0: The meta meta two. So meta two was not as impressive as meta one, but the same protocol was used. and I do have to reiterate the dosing to you. They ended up with eleven patients, and they had to toss a couple out, and nine had actually ingested the product. Eight drank windshield wiper fluid. And one drank gas antifreeze. And it was a suicide in six of those. And three of them had initial plasma concentrations of at least 100. And there was a strong inverse correlation between the pH values and the formic acid again. Formic acid correlates with acidosis. Glycolic acid correlates with acidosis. Um, seven of the patients had visual abnormalities. Um, but none of them had the snowstorm effect. Um, there were, um, the mean levels were, I think, 7. 1. The range of, uh, formic acid concentrations were, uh, 80 milligrams per in the group that had visual, and whereas the range for the whole group was up to 200, basically. And those who did not have visual impairment also had, uh, a range of 0 to 24. So, again, if your level was lower, the risk of be developing, uh, visual impairment was low, and again, some of these patients were comatose, so they really couldn't tell if they actually had visual uh, pupils, but they did have fixed dilated pupils, which is often described, and so they took that as a possible. Um, the mean duration of treatment was about 30 hours. They usually got about four doses. Seven of the nine got hemodialysis. Um, after institution of mephazole, formic levels fell in all the cases. Uh, the metabolic acidosis got better and the methanol elimination in patients who didn't go on hemodialysis had a half-life of roughly 54 hours, as opposed to ethylene glycol, which is about 17 hours. So this stuff does take a long time to be essentially exhaled passively if you block its uh, metabolism. Plasma from was measured multiple times, and it was above what they felt was the target level of 0.8 micrograms per mil. On all the three of the 155 determinations for that level. Um, as far as adverse effects, these patients tolerated things really well. There was a little bit of phlebitis in one, and anxiety, agitation, dyspepsia, and hiccups and other people. Um, but in general, nothing very untoward happened. Now, two of these patients did die as a result of the methanol poisoning. Both were comatose with severe acidosis on arrival. The plasmic formic acid levels were really high and they both had anoxic brain injury. So, uh, you know, you have to get to the patient early is sort of the bottom line there, resuscitate them aggressively. So they concluded that, based on this case series, uh, it's safe and effective, and at least on a theoretical ground, plasma concentration of 0.8 micrograms per milliliter seems to be what you need to achieve. Remember that number, because it's going to come up in some of the other articles. 0.8 micrograms per milliliter is what you need to achieve to block... The uh, metabolism of either ethyl glycol or methanol, and so there we have why we treat our patients nowadays with this instead of alcohol. One of the other big things when this drug was being approved, people said, "Wow, it's an expensive drug. Alcohol is really cheap. Why are we why are we marching ahead with technology?" Well, it turns out that we're not as good at giving one drug as we are or the other. So to talk a little bit about that, Mark is going to tell us about medication errors that occur with each of these.
5: So the, uh, the article is Medication Errors Associated with the Use of Ethanol and Methanol as Antidotes for Methanol and Ethylene Glycol Poisoning, published in Clinical Toxicology in April of 2011. Um, so the uh the authors, uh, you know, remind us that ethanol is a very inexpensive drug, but requires a continuous IV infusion, and dose titration, and serum level monitoring, and it directly causes an altered sensorium. Whereas propofol has a higher initial acquisition cost, but is dosed at a fixed, uh, a fixed per kilogram dose um, every 12 hours, and has generally been shown to have fewer direct adverse uh, drug events. Um has been promoted to be safer than uh, ethanol for, for those uh, differences. And the authors proposed that while there's some support um, of the, the direct events, um, uh, fewer being related to flamepazole, there's little information about the actual dosing errors between the two medications. So the, the self-described um, objective of the study was uh, to describe and compare the frequency, type, and outcome of ethanol and flamepazole-related medication errors, and to identify types of errors, and the underlying causes associated with that harm. So they did a retrospective review um, of charts, uh, males and females age 13 or older, from January 1996 through December 2005, um, that were either coded as methanol methanol or ethylene glycol poisoning, and uh, inclusion criteria were were all those things, plus they had to be uh, received one or more doses of the treatment medications. Um, They make a special note that a patient with multiple overdose attempts could contribute to more than one data point, um, they were okay with that. And uh, the samples were drawn from 10 different hospitals in four different geographic regions of uh, British Columbia, Canada. And all the sites were uh, had equal access to ethanol and fumefazole. Um However, the study started in 96, and femepazole wasn't available in 2002, so there's, that's reflected in some of the numbers that they got. The data was abstracted and separately reviewed by two abstractors using a standardized form. Um, everything was taken down verbatim. They didn't evaluate or classify errors during the abstraction. They just purely pulled out information that was relevant. Um, they used poison-centered data only to as a supplement but not as uh, an initial source, as a primary source. Um, so phase one of the study consisted of three medical toxicologists um, who classified adverse events according to a World Health Organization classification system. Phase two, what uh, actually occurred prior to the data collection or abstraction, and this was uh, 15 pharmacists, physicians, and nurses providing consensus um, on the definitions of dosing errors um, using multiple resources. And... Then after that, three medical toxicologists and one pharmacist were actually were blinded to any of the patient identifiers and uh, reviewed the abstract summaries for each case and used those guidelines that were established to determine the type of medication error. Um, and uh, they used uh, the uh, National Coordinating Council for Medic- Medication Error and Reporting Prevention um, to classify that as something that's been uh, well studied and established. And then phase three, uh, the results of phases one and two were combined, and errors were classified according to that index. So, in their analysis, um, uh, patients who had received both treatments were counted as individual cases for each uh, for each treatment. Um, their error type, process outcome, uh, and cause were summarized by case. In each case, each error was counted once per case. Um, they were either categorized as there was no error, one or more non-harmful errors, and one or more harmful errors. So they used uh, Fisher's exact test to uh, compare the small data set. They, the results showed um, 145 cases of ethanol, uh, ethanol treatment and 44 cases of femepazole treatment. There were 15 of those cases that were treated with both ethanol and fametazole. And in all of those cases, ethanol preceded the femepazole treatment. Um, all the hospitals in the in the study, contributed both ethanol and methazole cases, hopefully eliminating any disparity there. In uh, table one, uh, which describes their, uh, uh, the baseline characteristics, there a few disparities, only but probably insignificant. And there are 100% of males in the ethanol treatment uh, group, were, and 33% were male in the methazole treatment group. Um, and they also note that. There there was a bit of a a disparity in the number of treatments uh, for ethanol and femepazole. As I said before, the femepazole wasn't available until 2002. And then when it did become available, uh, there was 100% reimbursement for the hospital if the poison control center was consulted when the femepazole was used. So that may have led to a little bit of... uh, you know, perhaps skewing the results in the sense that maybe those people were getting additional... Gotta love those Canadians. Socialism, <laughs> Socialism. <laughs> I, love, I love it. I love it. Can you annex us? <laughs> um, so that, that may or may not have affected some of the results. Um, table 2 uh, shows the amount of ethanol from epazole treated cases with medication errors, and they're classified. So overall, there are 305 total errors in, which is 75, 78% of the ethanol cases, and 36, which represents 45% of the methanol cases, and there was uh, that was statistically significant with fewer methanol errors, um, and there was also a significant difference between the uh, inappropriate duration of ethanol use, excessive dosing with ethanol, and inadequate monitoring with ethanol. So those are all kind of deficiencies on the ethanol treatment side. Um, There was no significant difference in harmful errors between femepazole and ethanol, but there were fewer uh, femepazole errors overall. There were 3 out of 44, which was was 7%, and 28 out of 145 with ethanol, which was 19%. That was not significant. Uh, And then they talk about the harm-related errors. So most harm was associated with delayed treatment medication administration or excessive dose, particularly for ethanol. But overall, they actually know that the biggest harm, regardless of the treatment, was a delay in the treatment. So kind of uh, what you consider outside almost the the aspects of the study, but it was important to note that. Um, Phomeposol errors overall uh, were transient hypotension, bradycardia, due to uh, excessive dosing um, based on an incorrect weight-based calculation. And there was one episode of CNS depression after excessive dosing uh, in a short dosing interval. Um, all of the events in, in all categories, both from and Ethanol, were reversible um, and were related to dosing, or usually related to dosing. Um, but again, delayed administration was the, the biggest effect that we saw. Um, looking at contributions to error, there were significantly more prescribing errors with ethanol. Wrong uh, dose in ethanol versus from was, was, there was uh, significantly more. Um, and error in initiation or duration was, was greater with ethanol. Um, so in the discussion, kind of wrap things up, they talk about overall, phamepazole was less frequently associated with error. Um, it may be less likely to be associated with harm, um, but overall the biggest uh, issue was uh, was the overall delay to therapy. All
0: right. Yeah, so nice. And, you know, unfortunately, we still see this. It's pretty hard to give alcohol without making some thought error, dosing error, math error, or whatever. And they come up with some recommendations at the end of the article. So they reduce lab misinterpretations. Your lab should automatically generate both the NIN and osmolar gaps, so you have the information right in front of you instead of you looking at it and not doing the calculation yourself. They recommended incorporating poison control into approved guidelines, which we, of course, support that notion if we can only get paid for doing that. If would be wonderful, too. Um, but we're not Canada uh, yet, I guess. They still, still do that. Do that. <laughs> God, I love those guys. Um, avoid delays in the antidote supply, so you should keep the drug where you're most likely to use it, which is in the emergency department and not hidden away somewhere. It should be available 24 hours a day. Um, you need to write your orders clearly and specify the route and the rate and whether boluses are done. Avoid calculation errors, like Everything should be ex- expressed similarly, not in milligrams or millimoles and all those other inter- uh, conversion errors that we've had in the past. Uh, clearly indicate the antidote dose before, during, and after hemodialysis, which comes up, that we should repeat it Q4 hours during dialysis, um, if possible. And to go, again, practice medical reconciliation after transfers came up, where patients were transferred from the ER to the hospital or the ICU to the ward, and no one really. Looked at what their own med lists were and they didn't start their medications again and there were substantial delays. So, giving these drugs, both of these drugs, IV, can cause errors, as this article showed. But it would be great, not if they made math in my life easier, if they could also make the administration of these drugs easier too. I can just like give them a pill and, you know, do it that way. Well, it turns out we're almost there. And to talk about that, uh, Ben, our talks fellow.
6: Yeah, so the study I'm looking at is uh, from Clincox in 2008. Uh, Oral administration of methazole produces similar blood levels as identical uh, intravenous dose. Um, This is a pretty interesting study. they uh, uh, talk about a little bit of background. And I won't repeat the stuff that we've already talked about with the mefazole, but But um, they delve into the pharmacokinetic data and uh, say that in rats, um, the elimination is first order. It's a linear process uh, with a half-life of um, 9 to 11 hours. Then primates and humans it looks like it's a zero order for a nonlinear process um, and in monkeys it looks like the uh, the minimum effective concentration is around 0.8 uh, micrograms uh, per milliliter and that's uh, what we saw in the study the from the um, uh, from the New England journal articles that they they said was the minimum uh, concentration Um However, there is um, uh, a human or a study of human cells that uh, that suggests you may need a tenfold less to actually inhibit the uh, alcohol dehydrogenase in human livers. So, 0.08 micrograms per milliliter. But um, regardless, uh, every study overshoots that number by a huge margin. You have a very large margin uh, uh, of air above the minimum effective, uh, concentration in every study that has looked at it. Um, so the benefits potentially of oral administration is that it simplifies your dosing, um, and particularly when you're not entirely sure that it's toxic alcohols, and you can just give somebody, um, uh, a pill or, uh, a, a glass of liquid to drink, uh, um, and, uh, not have to put an IV in necessarily, uh, and um, that uh, uh, more hospitals might stock this if it was in a, a PO form. I don't know how true that is, but uh, that was one of their theories. So um, I think most of it is based on costs, so I don't know that they uh, would really care which uh, form it was if the price tag was the same. The... Um, so the primary obje- objective of this study was to describe the um, pharmacokinetic profiles of femepazole in oral and IV therapeutic doses in uh, healthy human volunteers. And the second objective was to determine the time above the presumed minimum effective concentration. And uh, they rounded up uh, to, or they, sorry, they used the 0.8 micrograms per milliliters, but they didn't talk about it in micromoles per liter. So it's 10 micromoles. So their study, they had 10 healthy volunteers between 18 and 55, and they had to be within 30% of ideal body weight, so uh, no uh, extremely obese people. Um, and they recruited them all from the staff of SUNY Upstate. Um, so it was uh, I don't know if that included medical students or not, but uh, I'm assuming residents were heavily recruited for this. Um, and uh, they uh, got a bunch of baseline labs, admitted everybody, and they designed it as a prospective randomized crossover trial, where you got one dose either IV or oral, and then you came back later and got the other dose. So you acted as your own control. Um, they fasted prior to the administration, and then you either got uh, you got the loading dose basically. So you either got uh, 15 mgs per kg um, IV or 15 mgs per kg orally. Um, and then they drew a bunch of labs afterward um, and sent it all off to LSU to uh, analyze the levels with um, HPLC. Um, the uh, um, So they use kind of standard pharmacometric analysis um, that I won't go into right now, um, but I'll just talk about the results. So um, everybody who started the study completed it. They had no dropouts, and everybody did both arms, which was good. Um, and uh, the phomepazole uh, was very well tolerated. Um, only three subjects complained of adverse events, and that was headache and vague complaints of dizziness after both uh, IV and oral administration. Vital signs were stable throughout. Interestingly, all ten subjects complained of an unpleasant metallic taste, um, and that was after IV or oral administration, so it didn't matter the form of administration. So, Figure two, which you can't see on the podcast, but it, I will describe for you, shows a two basically identical curves of uh, oral and IV administration, with uh, all the way out to forty-five hours, um, uh, with one dose uh, being above the uh, the minimum effective concentration. Uh, there's a at, just in the first hour or two, it looks like the peak uh, level is a little higher with IV dosing, but um, uh, but regardless the, within the first uh, first uh, uh, level that's drawn and that's drawn in the uh, 15 minutes after administration, uh, both oral and IV have uh, levels that are well above the minimum effective concentration. Um, and the curve looks like it's plotted on a semi-log scale, but it looks like a nonlinear elimination kinetics. Um, and then um, they say looking at all the pharmacometrics, they, Feel like the kinetics best fit with a two-compartment model with Michaelis-Menten elimination, and uh, that fit very well with uh, with the model predicted uh, using the that, those um, uh, pharmacokinetic uh, uh, modeling. So, um, after oral administration, uh, Femepazole has a bioavailability of nearly 100%. Um, and, uh, the, and like I was saying, the time, uh, above the MAC was, um, they predict the mean, or the mean level is, uh, or the mean time above is 32.4 hours. So basically you have over 24 hours with one dose of vermethazole and you're effectively blocking, um, a patient. Um, the, and that could be oral or IV. So, um... That, and so the conclusions, principal findings, are that you have similar bioavailability with IV and oral, and the Vmax and uh, um, and uh, and all, basically all the pharmacokinetic parameters are uh, the same. The kinetics are the same with both, and it's a two-compartment model with Michaelis-Menten elimination. And that's consistent with the prior human studies uh, that showed, and animal studies that showed a zero-order elimination uh, process. And the volume of distribution was uh, the same, uh, which was about 0.66. Um, and that's consistent with what's been reported in uh, in poison patients in the past. Um, and so it looks like femepazole goes along with total body water and a similar similar volume of distribution of to toxic alcohols. Um, so uh, they do... Go into a, a couple other studies that uh, just in they put some background at the end, which is a little interesting. But uh, they talk about how that uh, the at higher doses you may increase elimination, and uh, and so these kinetics uh, may uh, may change with high doses or repeated dosing. Um, and they didn't actually analyze that in this uh, this paper. Um, and um, that. Uh, but uh, oral administration seems to be effective in all other case reports and case series that they uh, they've seen that they've uh, they're aware of, um, and those are pretty a couple pretty small case uh, series, and then. Um, I think that is. I think the limitations are that um, they. This is a small study with just healthy human volunteers, so it may change. These pharmacokinetics may change in in an ill or poisoned patient or somebody who's not close to ideal body weight, and um, also that the people may not use it if the flavor is bad. So they suggest um, uh, masking the flavor with uh, something else, um, and uh, they. It, <laughs> They think that uh, hemodialysis uh, dosing should probably be the same at, uh, with as with IV, so uh, you dose every four hours. But they don't know that. Then there's a follow-up response, a letter to the editor that a group in France from Paris sent in and said, "Hey, um, we saw your article, and we've actually been doing this at uh, at our hospital. We've been giving it uh, orally, and they have a case, uh, a couple cases or a case series of." 18 ethylene glycol poison patients, and 9 methanol poison patients. Um, and... Really yeah, it's the same <laughs> as... The, basically the same as in doing the journal articles. Um, so they... Um, the, they have been successfully using this and really had no complications. Um, and everybody has recovered as well as can be expected. Um, the uh, uh, kind of complications that they've noted... Um, uh, are that two orally treated patients developed mild transient eosinophilia, and one developed a generalized pruritic uh, skin rash, um, and nobody had an unpleasant taste in the mouth from IV or oral administration. Um, and so they suggest that you can give people oral uh, femefazole, and that uh, the, the Obviously, the K series is bigger for ethylene like so they're more comfortable recommending that, but they think uh, it should work well for methanol too. Um, and uh, you should be aware that alder all metal status or bombing may limit the rural route. Um, uh, and they, they dilute their fumepazole in orange juice to uh, mask the taste. Put yeah. apple juice. Mm-hmm. Right. French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, th- I think this is interesting, and it uh, actually gives a pretty nice solution <laughs> to these people where it take it's going to take uh, 12 or uh, 24 hours to get a-, a level, and we don't have a, a super high suspicion that uh, the-, the-, the patient is poisoned uh, and definitely needs to-, to be monitored more closely than giving one oral dose, and you have 24 hours to wait on the lab to come back would be really nice. And, uh uh, uh, as, as as long as there aren't other uh, other factors that purchase could just be watched uh, pretty easily um, uh, during that
0: period. All right, and, and not get flown up halfway across right. the state and not necessarily get put in an ICU as long as they're awake and thinking, this talking. This is
1: huge for us in Alaska. Right? Oh, yeah. We've got these small villages where they can't obtain IVs, and so we end up middle of the night in a snowstorm trying to fly people over mountains to, to get them places, that, you know, when they could just have an oral medication that, that they just mix up and give someone. That but is,
2: it, is the is the rate limiting step being able to do an IV, or is it having the medication available in the first place? The first
1: well, place? I don't even think they've tried because they can't. If you can't get an IV, then there's not even there's no reason to even try. Okay. I mean, yeah. you think cost benefit stocking a medication versus paying for so a plane place? flight? Yeah, I mean, reality, it's varies it varies
0: village to village, but yeah, we have some that do have it, and some that don't don't have it. But I mean, I think in the
1: small ones where we're like way out in the middle of nowhere, this actually might be something worth talking mm-hmm. to them about.
0: Yeah. Certainly treat them morally if there's no, you know, if they're not comfortable or they can't seem to do anything else.
6: Mm-hmm. I was just saying you could you could even treat them empirically with the whirl and keep them in the village if you can't get out to run a sample
0: all right. if you Just want to be patient. Wait through like five,
6: Three to five projected half lives.
0: Yeah. You know, which is like is seventeen hours times five. You Just treat them
6: yeah.
0: once a day for five days. Have them drop by the village health aide's office and say, "Here's your liquid shot of your daily from epizol. Don't drink anymore. Come on back." <laughs> so so know that how much it costs? Well, it well, it's the same on. thing. It's available it's uh, IV, but yeah, but, IV but it's you're right. It could that doesn't necessarily have to be as much. So it would be great, you know, simplify the math. That's not going to keep us up at night anymore. We could maybe give it orally. That won't keep us up at night, wondering how to get it to people. we maybe get the labs to start doing ethylene glycol levels. There's only one thing that will keep us up at night, and that's what to do with those diethylene glycol cases.
7: <laughs> All right, so I have the next article, which is delayed neurological sequelae of ethylene glycol, diethylene glycol, and methanol poisonings. So this is a, an article in the Clinical Toxicology in October of 2010 coming out of Dartmouth, and it is a literature review um, where they're really trying to answer the question of, you know, what are these delayed neurological sequelae and what are the possible causal cellular mechanisms? So their literature review, review came out of, a PubMed database where they generated about 45 um, references that they used for this article. So just briefly without repeating a whole lot of what we, we already know with um, each of these, I will just kind of go into their features of um, neurological sequelae. So first of all, with ethylene glycol toxicity, it has about four um, sequential clinical phases that have some overlap. So the early neurological symptom is from 30 minutes to 12 hours after ingestion and is the symptoms of inebriation, ataxia, coma, seizures. Then you have an intermediate phase, which is 12 to 48 hours after ingestion, and that's your cardiopulmonary um, syndrome with cyanosis, tachypnea, pulmonary edema, um, or bronchopneumonia. And then they have a third late phase at 24 to 72 hours after ingestion, and that's your metabolic acidosis, renal failure, often from that crystal oxaluria. But most uncommonly, um, you tend to get this delayed neurological fourth phase of toxicity. They can happen anywhere from 5 to 20 days later, and interestingly has this cranial nerve 7, or facial nerve, um, it's the most common um, implicated nerve. So they're thinking that this is resulting from basal ganglia injury, um, though that's unusual. Um, they kind of looked at a bunch of different reports of where, where um, this happened. So they, they have multiple studies. Um, we can't look at these tables, never mind. They are shown in table one, um, showing that they also have things with that are um, compatible with a rapid onset of Parkinson's syndrome, um, and then they have serial MRI studies that are also shown um, in their article here that are documenting this evolving focal inflammation and necrosis in the basal ganglia, um, compatible with this same clinical signs and symptoms of Parkinsonian. Autism. So what's is kind of their main thing that they're trying to look at is, what is this toxicity, what's kind of the mechanism of it, and for ethylene glycol, it's quite controversial. Um, they're not sure if this is from direct toxic cellular me- mechanisms or if it's secondary to this calcium oxalate crystal deposition um, in the cerebral vasculature, as we know that that is something that leads to the renal injury as well as when you have this um, calcium oxalate deposition. So other possible things is the have depletion of cofactors such as pyridoxine and thiamine, um, with resultant ischemia, edema, and inflammatory responses. Um, and it's also been suggested that you the oxidation of cellular macromolecules or other relative reduction of acetylcholinesterase-containing neurons can cause a cholinomimetic effect as well. So this the whole thing, it's not really a good estimate of you know, what is this toxicity? It's kind of a bunch of different things. So the next one they look at is diethylene uh, glycol, which um, this one is predominantly metabolized into ethylene glycol and then subsequently oxalic acid. Um, but they've also found that the, um, it's kind of controversial, but they found that the main thing that they think is producing toxicity in this is the 2-hydrooxy ethanol acetic acid. Um so that was interesting. And I think, and I think
0: current mm-hmm. thinking is it's really it doesn't really go to ethylene glycol, but it goes to that compound, mm-hmm. which is renal toxic as well.
7: Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um diethylene glycol has three characteristic phases. The first phase being the central nervous system features of the new and gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, and metabolic acidosis, second phase being metabolic acidosis worsening, and then some hepatic and renal injury development. And then this final stage is the delayed um, lethal neurological effects, sometimes including various different neuropathies. So with this one, again, there's they looked at um, about three or four different studies um, looking at what these neurological um, sequelae tend to be so they get more of a quadrupresis, the sensory motor peripheral neuropathies um, they can, one of them showed they had fulminant ascending paralysis, demyelinating peripheral neuropathies, bulbar par- palsies so um, a little bit different neurological sequelae um, also without a fully elucidated um, mechanism for why this is happening so. Um, Initially, it was hypothesized that it's from the oxalic acid and calcium oxalate was possibly involved, but that's now known to be incorrect. Um, They proposed that um, the demyelinating neuropathies are possibly a later effect and secondary to an acute axonal neuropathy. Um, possibly due to these transcellular fluid shifts, membrane destabilization through the phospholipid or ion channel effects, acid-based arrangements, osmotic metabolite accumulation within the cells are all kind of mechanisms that they're thinking is possible. Other things to consider there, I mean, it's again, not really fully elucidated for why this is happening. So I feel like in all of these you kind of get the same gist is that they try to propose mechanisms, but they're not um, fully coming down with a solid answer. So lastly, they talk about methylene methanol toxicity, um, which again is also mediated through its metabolites, um, mostly the formic acid, has been the the main one that's hypothesized and also what is um, leading towards this optic nerve damage. Um, at the level of the mitochondria. So the long-term sequelae of methanol are the Parkinsonian uh, symptoms um, after this, and then showing that they don't really have um, an effect after levodopa therapy. That was controversial as well. Some people get help from levodopa, and others do not. The theory on this mechanism is that... um, at high concentrations of formic acid in the basal ganglia, you get necrosis and impair- impairment of mitochondrial cytochrome oxidase, which will cause a myelinoclastic effect. Um, it's also possible that you have reduced venous drainage, inadequate arterial blood flow, hypoxemia, hypotension, acidosis, and heparin therapy can also—that's um, used during hemodialysis—can cause these problems. All in all, with all of these, I have, This is my take on it in general, is that they try to propose mechanisms of toxicity. It's largely anecdotal, um, different studies that they tried to pinpoint, but really just comes down to with ethylene, glycol, glycol, it's probably the oxalate crystal deposition. With um, methanol, it's likely the formic acid that's causing the optic nerve damage. Um, And then with the diethylene glycol, it's that 2-hydroxyethylene, ethanoacetic acid, sorry, um, that's causing the cranial neur- neuropathies, but really they don't have a clear reason of why with ethylene glycol you have the facial nerve that's more implicated than other nerves. There's just more studies that need to be done.
0: So, so just a, a good overview to suggest that some of these <laughs> things have profound neurologic injury, either if not treated early or even if treated, they can still progress to these. And the one we know the least about still remains is diethylene glycol. Mm-hmm. And the good news is we don't see a lot of pediatric ethylene glycol ingestions, we don't see a lot of methanol ingestions, but we've had these outbreaks of diethylene glycol being added as a, an excipient to a flavoring in some of these international outbreaks with diethylene glycol producing you know, dozens if not hundreds of pediatric deaths, renal failure, neurologic delay. So the question is, Should we treat it the same way? We just use comepazole and answers, maybe, probably.
7: Probably, yeah. (laughs) So that is the second article that I have, which is comepazole for the treatment of pediatric ethylene and diethylene glycol, butoxyethanol, and methanol poisonings. So this is a review that came out of Clinical Toxicology in May of 2010 out of the University of Colorado. And it is another literature review. Um... looking for just a compilation of the information that's out there and trying to highlight that they really need more studies in the pediatric population, which I think, you know, this is exactly what they did. So they found 14 published cases that ranged from 5 months to 16 years old with a mean age of about five and a half years. Ten cases where famephazole was used for ethylene glycol, two cases for methanol, one case of butoxyethanol, and one case of diethylene glycol ingestion, all of which used episol And if you have the article, Table 1 highlights all of those. So just looking a little more closely at um, each one of these, the, for the 10 ethylene glycol poison patients, the median corded values for their pH was 7.27 bicarb, has all about 13 milliequivalents equivalents per liter and the ethylene glycol concentration about 2,140.
0: Eight and that's milligrams per liter, which translates to oh, yes. um, the one we usually think of, for about 214 milligrams per deciliter. So, kind of using an unusually set units okay. for that one. Just yeah, to I didn't clarify. recognize that either. Oh, it's okay.
7: Okay. Um, nine of these cases. Out of the ten presented with metabolic acidosis, and all of them, um, they, the acidosis resolved once they had the fomepizole, and all ten survived without any adverse sequelae. So, thus they said that this appears that based on just this experience here, the pediatric patients with serum ethylene glycol concentrations um, well in excess of those. It would trigger hemodialysis if we had used ethanol. can be treated with just the um without dialysis, and that will improve the acidemia. And what I thought was interesting on here, they did report in three of these cases the half-lives um, to be between 9 and 15 hours, which is actually a lot faster than the adult observation of 19.7 hours in that meta-trial that we talked about a little bit earlier. And then... Just to wrap up the other ones, they did um, look at just briefly. They had the two patients that ingested diethylene, glycol, and butoxyethylene. All of those recovered fine without any sequelae. And the two methanol poisoning patients were similar age. They are three and five years old. Um, Similar presentation and kind of the severity of their presentation. But one was hemodialyzed and the other was not. Again, they both um, recovered well without any sequelae and no adverse effects from the femeprazole. Their question kind of looking at this was also, you know, does giving femeprazole mean that you don't necessarily need to go to hemodialysis? When you look at all these patients that they did see and the different articles, they found that, you know, patients even with significant acidosis, serum bicarbs as low as 4 and the concentrations of ethylene glycol up to 3,500, all were effectively treated with femefazole in the absence of any hemodialysis. Even with that, the fact that ethylene glycol appears to have a more rapid elimination in the pediatric population, um, still provides support that withholding hemodialysis when you have normal renal function may um, be a good thing. So, (laughs) Um, also, you know, with that, you could potentially reduce the cost of hospitalization in these poisonings when they have normal renal function, don't have to go to hemodialysis. Other things, just they did kind of report a little bit on the pharmacokinetics in children, although there were only three cases where they did so, and they just found kind of the same thing we talked about before um, with the Michaelis-Menten kinetics, so the plasma concentrations, and these were found to be therapeutic, With Michaelis-Menten having zero-order elimination from the 0.6 to 1 milligrams per liter per hour at higher concentration than first-order elimination with an apparent elimination of half-life of 3.9 hours at the lower concentrations. And in all of these, they use the um, phomipazole regimen that we already talked about. Um, And just like you would do in the adult patients, they use the same um, in the children, and seemed to also be kind of this super therapeutic, or not super therapeutic, but above the range that that they uh, were aiming for. So um, they were their conclusion with that is that that accepted range seems to be appropriate for the pediatric patients as well, and all the other cases that didn't show it, even though they're kind of basing this off of three cases, all the other ones that didn't necessarily record any of this. The, um, the pharmacokinetics suggest that they still had inhibition of alcohol dehydrogenase because their acid-base disturbance is all resolved um, and then have to worsening. Adverse effects of fomepizole in the pediatric population, there's only one child who is a 6-year-old with ethylene glycol poisoning who had some nystagmus, but this is thought in his case to be potentially due to the ethylene glycol itself because he had multiple metabolic abnormalities um, and received several other things such as cifataxine, pyridoxine, thiamine. Not, and they're thinking not so much as an adverse effect of Fomethazole itself. And then comparing Fomethazole with ethylene, ethanol therapy, kind of alluded to this already before, but um, they do, in addition, add it, these two anecdotal cases of a 13-year-old and a 3-year-old boy who had worsening with ethanol infusion, saying it wasn't well-tolerated, some irritability, aggressive behavior, that they then switched to Femeprazole and had good results and let them go home. So, it sound, a
6: rough Friday night. Yeah, so.
7: yeah, exactly. So in conclusion, with just the limited data that they do have, it seems that um, Femeprazole is... Well tolerated by the pediatric population as it is with adults, and it's efficacious for them as well, and potentially could decrease the use of hemodialysis or even the need for it since they tend to have better renal function at baseline.
0: Yeah, you can even imagine kind of morphing this article with the articles Ben talked about. Is you have a suspected case of ethylene glycol or methanol ingestion in a child, you just treat them orally especially if you can't seem to get an IV on a little child. A lot of them, as we'll see, don't turn out to be toxic at all. You just wait to get the level back, and or you just treat them for four or five days. It seems like
6: they metabolize so much faster than adults that you wouldn't even have to do it that
0: long. Yeah, right. Yeah. You can just kind of get get out, get done in a couple of days, maybe maybe three days, if you want to be, be safe. So uh, we're still wonder what to do with these kids. Maybe the best thing to do is like, prevent them from getting in the stuff in the first place. It so would be wonderful if we had something like that that we can experiment with and, on a state-by-state basis and figure out if that works. What do you say, Shanna? Cold
6: parents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
2: All right. So I am presenting the paper, The Impact of Bittering Agents on Pediatric Ingestions of Antifreeze. I thought the results of this paper were interesting. This was published in Clinical Pediatrics in 2009. And this was looking at the question of, does adding bittering agents to antifreeze actually change our uh, level of required intervention and our level of, you know, just outright illness that we see from antifreeze ingestion in pediatrics? Um, From, you know, starting from just the standpoint of background, the authors start out by pointing out that Basically, there are no deaths reported from antifreeze ingestions under the age of five. Um, And when people are injured by antifreeze, it's almost always an intentional suicidal ingestion. So when we talk about pediatrics, we're already talking about a pretty low hit rate for serious outcomes. Um, Nonetheless, starting uh, in our fantastic state of Oregon, um, and then later in California and then in New Mexico, legislation was enacted that um, added... denatonium benzoate, which is much easier to call vitrex, to Mm -hmm. antifreeze. It's apparently one of the most bitter-tasting agents out there, and it can be tasted at concentrations as low as 50 parts per billion. The very logical idea being if you put something in this yummy, sweet liquid, ethylene glycol, it tastes terrible, then kids will drink even less of it. Apparently, there were some volunteer studies that were a little bit funny reading about where things were coated in Vitrex and people were encouraged to eat or drink as much as they wanted, and unsurprisingly, volunteers ingested less of items that had bitrex in it. Um, that said, um, you know, sort of general population studies hadn't necessarily appreciated a real change in the rate of uplink glycol ingestion, injury, following um, the addition of Vitrex. So... What these authors did, they looked at um, the National Poison Center data um, from what is now called the Tess database, although it was called something else um, when the data was actually collected. They looked spanning. Well, it was called
0: Tess then. Now it's NPDS. Oh,
2: sorry, a little bit. Yes, it was, yeah, so was Tess then. Now it's NPDS. Um, the dates that they looked at ranged from April 30th, nineteen ninety five to July thirty first, two thousand five. And um, what they did was they pulled all of the ethylene glycol slash antifreeze exposures in um, Oregon, California, and New Mexico. Um, There's kind of a long and fairly complicated description of what was determined to be what kind of case, whether it was a bittered case or a non-bittered case, but there's actually a nice little table, table one, which just sort of breaks the dates down. The bottom line is there were different time periods at which the legislation was adopted in these three states that required there to be bittering agents added, and what they tried to do was look at 18-month time periods in each of these states before um, BITREX was added, and then 18 months after, and compare to see if they had different rates of the various variables they were investigating, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, New Mexico actually was only counted as a before group, because they added BITREX too close to the study date to be able to have good data. Um, so for the their data pool of non-bittered antifreeze, they basically looked at all national data. And then for bittered, they looked in Oregon and uh, California from this little time interval after legislation was passed that required um, bittering agents to be added to antifreeze. So as far as what they were looking for... Um, The first thing they wanted to determine was if there was a change in the frequency of antifreeze poisonings reported. They also wanted to see if there was a difference in the amount implicated. And then third, they wanted to see if there was a difference in the severity of poisonings reported. So um, that's kind of the long and the short of it. They... For sort of looking at frequency of reporting, they included all cases that included multiple ingestions, but for looking at more things that were a little bit harder to determine, like severity or amount ingested, they eliminated any cases where there were multiple agents implicated, and they only looked at cases where it was a single ingestion of antifreeze, um, which makes the data more clean, but also, of course, significantly limits the number of cases that you have. Um, Let's see. What else? Um, They had to combine their Oregon and California data. Uh, This was done both because the numbers were overall pretty small, and also because part of the reporting for sort of protecting the data was that the states couldn't be identified, sort of providing geographic protection to patients. So frequency, that's pretty straightforward. They're looking at the number of reports. Uh, The variable of the volume that was reported They looked at what was coded uh, in the various charts. This was reported as either exact or estimated. But, of course, even with exact, it becomes estimated because there's a certain amount of guessing of what volume a pediatric ingestion really is. So if it was reported as a taste, a lick, or a drop ingested, it was converted to 3 mLs. If it was reported as a mouthful, it was converted to 5 mLs based on sort of previous standards established for guessing at how much a child of five or less will actually put in their mouth. And as far as um, severity, they looked at a number of medical outcomes, um, healthcare interventions, clinical effects, whether or not the patient received an antidote, whether they were alkalinized, whether they received dialysis, or if they were intubated. Uh, looking at those variables, they attempted to see if there were any, they did like a logistic regression to see if there were any individual variables that could predict a severity of ingestion. Um, so let's see. Then they talked about their magical statistics, and which I can't really comment on at all except to say that they did them, and I found them a little dodgy throughout some of the paper, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And then finally, as far as their power, um... Because they were dealing with a fixed data set, what they did was they took all the cases they had, and then they said, "If we were going to assume an 80% power, what is the power of the numbers in front of us?" And this worked out to them having 80% power to detect a ooh, 0.02% difference in um, frequency, a 9% difference in percentages of patients that made it to that had to be managed at a healthcare facility a 3% difference in percentages of patients who went to the ICU. It's sort of a different way of looking at power
6: than we're used to. Usually that happens when the, 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 reviewer, when the, reviewer know when the reviewers say we need a power calculation <laughs> for your manuscript. Got it. Interesting. You can do it as a retrospective just before you do the, like, run this, mm. this
2: is why we have been around. Just for his uh, insight into epidemiology and statistics. The only reason. Just kidding. Alright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, as far as their results, they had a total of 7,868 ethylene glycol cases um, that they looked at, and 6,450 of those, so a good proportion were single ingestions, or single Asian ingestions. Not surprising, since we're talking about little kids who are kind of mouthing their way through the world. Um, Just sort of, as far as the breakdown of those goes, the vast majority were ages one to two. Again, that kind of fits little kids who are grabbing things and putting them in their mouths. Um, 67% of the non bittered and 65% of the bittered were in that one and two-year-old age bracket. So starting out with this sort of strange-looking-to-me statistics, the first thing they report in this paper is that they saw no difference in the frequency of ingestions In California Oregon, post-bittering, wait, hang on, I'm sorry. Yes, after bittering, they saw no change in the frequency of ingestions in California and Oregon compared to other places in the country that had not bittered yet. Um, They give a p-value of 0.3. This is sort of a common theme to me. Like, throughout this paper, I'll kind of point these out, but Mm -hmm. there are lots of p-values given that from my sort of having taken Biostats 101 in med school, to me, just indicate a lack of statistical significance, and they repeatedly interpret these things as meaning, quote, no difference, which, to me, that's not what you're showing. You're showing that whatever result you found here just doesn't have statistical significance. So that's something that kind of irritates me throughout, but (laughs) um, with my (laughs) entry-level biostats haughtiness. Nonetheless, okay, so they do report, though, that interestingly, even... um, the number of ethylene glycol ingestions reported nationwide went down pretty significantly over their time period from 1995 to 2005 down by 40% um, which we'll speculate later on a little bit later so as far as the moving just on through their results, the volume data when they're talking about the amount ingested um, they found that the amount reported was similar between the bittering, the bitter ingestions and the non-bittered ingestions and the most common size was 3 mLs, which was their lip sip or drop. Again, um, they found a p-value of 0.86, which would show that this was a not statistically significant result. Um, the medical outcomes that they looked at were also found to be not different between groups with a p-value of 0.11. And it, um, and the outcomes were basically benign, with no fatalities out of that entire cohort of 6,500 patients, and um, only 0.25% of the total cases had what they considered a life-threatening or major outcome. So not surprisingly, given what the statement I just made, the frequency of treatment in intensive care units and the frequency of hospital admission was pretty low and was not, not statistically different between the two groups. Their p-value was 0.2. percent They looked at the different variables they had tried to examine to see if any one particular feature could be determined to have some bearing on severity of illness, and they didn't find anything particularly remarkable. In particular, bittering did not significantly associate with medical outcome. So having a bittering agent or not didn't seem to have any bearing on how sick you got. Uh, It also didn't seem to have any bearing on whether or not you got hospitalized. And it failed to, bittering failed to demonstrate any impact on the volume ingested as well. So basically, consistently throughout this, they're finding that there's really no change in groups that they can observe whether or not there's a bittering agent put in your antifreeze. Um, There was similarly, they report no difference in the use of alkalinization, hemodialysis, or intubation. Again, all of the p-values are much higher than 0.05. And um, their single positive finding with statistical significance was that antidote was used more frequently in states where bittering agents had been added. 5.2% of cases got antidotes as opposed to one3 In states, I'm sorry, I flipped those. States without bittering, they used uh, antidotes more frequently. Basically, as they're presenting it, a negative study showing that there's really no difference made in the already low rate of significant outcomes um, by adding crittering agents. So they do some fairly extensive quoting from a landmark paper written by Dr. Mullins and Dr. Horowitz. Uh, We're looking at Oregon's experience with this and sort of the take home is they're saying we agree with Dr. Horowitz that adding bittering agents may not impact things as, you know, may not be as important as we would have imagined because it just seems to not be as as important of a problem as we thought it would be to change the taste, to really have this change our outcomes. Um, you know, the thing that they... They sort of dance around in the conclusions or in the discussion. To me, is that's great. We're talking about pediatrics. I guess the question is, does it make any difference whatsoever with suicidal ingestions, which is clearly not something that they look at here. Um, I guess if somebody's really set on killing themselves by drinking a whole bunch of antifreeze, they're going to do it, whether or not it tastes bad. Um, I think they reference some studies that don't really show any difference in outcomes with suicidal ingestions once bittering agents have been added. Um, the other thing they don't touch on, of course, is the veterinary exposures. Think of all the dogs that probably do get saved by having them use something use better in the antifreeze. They would have otherwise just slipped, lapped up in the garage. Um, let's see. They... They do basically, they comment on their one, their one single positive finding, which was that more antidotes were given in states that don't have veterinary agents, and they basically said, you can't really draw any conclusions from that. that all that means is that those, those physicians were more concerned about their, you know, the possibility for somebody getting sick, and that you can't really draw any conclusions as to why or, you know, why not that happened. Um... And again, they reiterate the very low rate of bad outcomes with pediatric congestions anyway. So basically, you know, final final conclusion is, in theory, it's very appealing to put something bitter in antifreeze to keep kids from drinking it, but maybe we don't need to expend the time, effort, and energy to make this compulsory because it doesn't seem to really change things that much.
0: Yeah, I mean... It, struggle struggled with a couple of numbers in there, and I agree. we got to look at, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is in the states, the two states that actually added the bittering agents, there were no major effects and no deaths, and no one got intubated, and no one got hemodialysis, and no one even got alkalinized. So suggesting something was going on, but you got to realize that the number to compare it to was under only 100, uh, sorry, uh, 232 cases in those states that were compared to then 6,000-plus in all the other states where, you did have 16 major effects, but still no deaths, and you had 21 patients alkalinized, 17 hemodialyzed. and you don't know what the circumstances were, whether it was done empirically or not, and nine of them intubated. You don't know how many of those were intubated because they needed to hold them still to get them hemodialyzed So really what you really need to find out is what the level is really different, because you're right. If you put bittering agents in there, and the kid's just going to take a sip or a lick and there's unquantifiable amount, you don't know if they just... Got it. Whether they stuck their mouth on top of the jar, whether it was tasting good or bad, so you can't tell.
1: I will. I will throw in my crushing review of all Poison Center chart reviews. Yeah. That if you look at the percentage of follow-up in this case, they they had a, only had a definite outcome on seventy-two percent of patients, yeah. which means if they're right at about one in three. They have no idea what happened with them, and if you look at the follow-up on the without bittering states, it's sixty percent. Like, there's no follow up there and it's all all of us know the difficulties with quantifying the amount taken in we can't even tell whether a kid took a pill, much less quantify like an amount that they take in of a solution. It's almost impossible. So actually like trying to compare the difference in those is
0: just ludicrous in my mind. Yeah. So one of the big criticisms that came along is like, well how do you know there's actually this Fitrex and the antifreeze to begin with. How do you know people weren't, like, buying it in, like, Washington, bringing it to Oregon or buying it out of the back of a truck in L.A.? Only the good, decent
2: antifreeze well, for my house. Yeah, we only want that
0: bitter stuff, you know. So to answer that question briefly, we there was one last study to talk about. Okay.
2: I can do this probably in about four sentences or less, although I can't do many things in four sentences or less, so... Mm. My last paper is the analysis of denotonium, benzoate, and Oregon consumer products by HPLC. This was some very smart, scientific-type people who wanted to see if there was an easy, quick way to prove that there is vitrex in things, and if, if their test worked. And they basically bought a bunch of consumer products, antifreeze, methanol, some nail polish, some other things, in 1994, and then they bought a bunch of consumer products in 1996. And they also bought some plain old Bittrex from the company that makes it. And they um, did their high-pressure liquid chromatography on the Bittrex itself as a control and on the various consumer products to look and see if they could detect that there was Bittrex present. And basically, their results are in Table 1 and Table 2. Table one shows the products that were purchased in 1994. And uh, of note, the antifreeze that was before it was compulsorily required to have Vitrex in it. ND in this table means non-detected, and you can see a very wide range of concentrations of Vitrex detected in some products, not others. Um, of note, nail polish remover, hair coloring, glass cleaner have never been required to have uh, Vitrex in them, but they tested them nonetheless for fun. And a lot of those items actually did have tracks, indicating that uh, manufacturers are more than happy to add this stuff on their own for their own safety concerns. 1996, you see if you look at the antifreeze, all of the antifreeze has, has Vittrex in it now that they tested at, you at know, acceptable levels. And um, a lot of the windshield washer fluids do as well. And they had an internal control where any time they had something that tested as no VITREX, they would add their stock VITREX to it and run it through the machine to make sure that they were, in fact, not just somehow unable to detect VITREX in that food. And they were able to always detect VITREX once they added it. So bottom line, there is a liquid chromatography test that can be done. They claim relatively inexpensively and easily to determine if VITREX is really in products.
1: And that's that all
0: right so for the claim that somehow there's some dishonesty going on in oregon we wouldn't add bittrex to the antifreeze but just because they said we had to all bets are off it's in there <laughs> trust us if you don't believe us you can taste it okay. all right so that's our journal club for august any other comments from anybody else about all our various alcohols and how we treat them and prevent them and measure them and Still, we're going to stay up nights calculating anion gaps and osmol gaps and figuring out where to send the levels to until all these issues are completely ironed out. All right. So until next time, we'll see you then.